At Carvana, we're in the business of driving you happy. And with the widest selection of used cars under $20,000, you're bound to find a car that'll put a smile on your face. Carvana gives you control by letting you customize your down and monthly payments. You can browse tens of thousands of cars online to find one within your budget, and you won't get surprised with any bogus fees. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to shop for a vehicle. Carvana, we'll drive you happy. Availability may vary by market. I'm Jasmine Elmer, and this is Legit Classics. How this is going to work is I'm going to get someone that knows some stuff about things in their field. I'm going to take the things I know about the stuff in my field, bring this all together, and give you something bigger than either of us can do on our own. Whether you're here for the lulls or the learns, buckle up. It's time to get legit. All right, so today's guest is the wonderful Comedians Comedian podcast host, Stuart Goldsmith. It's so amazing to have you here today. I'm just going to intro you to our amazing uh, listeners. So you are Stu Goldsmith and Mm -hmm. comedian and podcast legend, really. I mean, I'm a novice. (laughs) I'm a novice. You're going to hate that, I'm sure, but veteran. Uh, am I allowed to say that a veteran? Or yes, you yeah, I upset think ten years that? makes me a veteran, veteran. in podcasting okay, terms, for cool. sure. Yeah, um, a host of comedians, comedian podcasts. Yes. So thank you for coming on today, and we're going to be chatting about ancient comedy and yes. also modern comedy and kind of what's going okay. on with those two things. Sure. What is your experience of classics? Did you ever study it at school? Do you know much about it? I don't even really know what classics means. I mean, I think I did, but uh, but I never, like, I think classics is like a university subject. Now, I did Latin GCSE, I think. Yeah, I did. Uh-huh. So I've done a bit of Latin and I know a bit about, you know, apud salvium and all that. Um, <laughs> but I... Uh, I I didn't study classics in any uh, real or lasting way. No, I feel like I could probably fudge my way through amongst people who haven't studied classics. Doing Latin GCSE is pretty pretty amazing. Very few people have done that. So that's quite yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, wish, so- I wish I had a quick Latin word to throw out, like, <laughs> thanks, but I can't well, remember. Well, you did Apid Salvium, which is, I think, Cambridge Latin course. So I think yeah, that's probably what you studied. The, it's, yeah, exactly. It's like the Bertillon family, if you do. Yeah, French, yeah. <laughs> you know, and all those guys. Yeah, I remember that. No, listen, I'm always loving it when anyone comes with any knowledge of it. You're right that Latin is kind of a part of classics. But really, we're talking about anything to do with the ancient Greek or Roman worlds. So Yes, okay. So the first thing I kind of want to get into a little bit is I want to talk a little bit about Greek comedy. Ancient Greek comedy is kind of in two sections. We have old comedy, which um, dates to like the 5th century BC, and that's kind of where it originates in ancient Greece. And it's much more kind of like, you know, comedic theatre. And it's very like political satire. It's taking the mickey out of politicians. It's taking the mickey out of political events. Um, And it sort of later on moves to something called new comedy. This is kind of like the mid-4th century BC. A new comedy sort of shifts its focus and its kind of attention onto the genre that's much more like a sitcom. Um, it's much more looking at like the family and kind of family dynamics and like taking the mickey out of slaves and your mother-in-law and your, and your wife and stuff like that. In, in those few hundred years, we see a big shift in what people are interested in. And, and we're going to get into it in a little bit about why that happens in the classical world. I'd like to understand our own really personal experiences with comedy. So my first question to you is, you know, do you think that there are jokes that are kind of universally funny? Or do you think kind of comedy changes kind of over time? Uh, good question. I think the, um, the sort of the deepest elements of it, the bones of it are universal. Um, it's about problems and it's about mistakes and it's about struggle, really, what comedy is. Um, I would probably misquote it, but there's a Mel Brooks quote along the lines of 
Uh, if I fall over and hurt myself, that's tragedy. But if you fall in an open hole and die, that's comedy. So it's about <laughs> it's about um, uh, it's about things going wrong, which is a brilliant way to. It's a great starting point if you're ever going to make comedy is to talk and think about the problems that you have, the real problems that you have in your life, and those are definitely universal things. Now they will have nuance, they'll have specificity over time because our mm-hmm. problems today aren't the same problems as people in ancient Egypt would have had 5,000 years ago. But some sure. of them are. Some of them are. People yeah. will always have problems with uh, with work, with bosses, with lives, with relationships. So the same things will crop up. I'd like to understand our own really uh, personal experiences with comedy because my mum brought me up on comedy. I think that's the first thing. I mean, I don't know what else she taught me. I didn't eat vegetables much, to be fair. <laughs> and I think quite uniquely, my mum and I have always shared the same comedic interests and kind of we would like the same type of comedy but do you did you have a generational difference between yourself and and your mum and dad say is that yes that difference I I remember there were certain things that they really liked I think on the radio the other day I heard the sorry theme tune I don't know if you'll remember the Ronnie Corbett sitcom sorry about a sort of embattled 38 year old man living with his mum his sort of tyrannical mother but like I remember my parents being into that and we'd watch that on a Sunday night and then I I was a big fan of the way that the language of that show then filtered into our own language. So there was a running joke about like if if he didn't eat his tea, he'd be offered it curried for breakfast. And so curried. <laughs> I remember my mum saying curried for breakfast, and she had um she had little phrases and stuff um, that I now recognise were uh, phrases from a, a particular sitcom. So there were things like that. I also found probably the, the my first memory of discovering comedy was via my parents, which was a compilation. Uh, record called the Hedgehog Sandwich, which was not the nine o'clock news. It was a not the nine o'clock news compa- uh, compilation. Now I remember listening to that and laughing at the rhythms, and then going back to it years later, or or sort of reappraising it years later, and going, "Oh, that was political satire." They were talking about, you know, they, they were talking about unions, they were talking about strikes, they were talking about punk movement, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, and so they were satirizing lots of things where. To me, I understood some of it. I understood the status interplay. I understood the silly voices and the rhythms of brilliant performances. Mm. Um, but I didn't really know what what it was about. I didn't, you know, they'd be doing a bit which was like, it was a sketch about a, an advert that was common at the time. And to me, it would just be absurdist. But I loved the rhythm and the and the resolution of the the sketches. So that so I don't remember ever watching that or listening to it with my parents. But I know that they enjoyed it enough to have it in the house. Yeah, I mean that's interesting because I was thinking about this earlier on about in the you know kind of the old comedy style where so much of it is political satire. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the nature of the audience back then because it's Athenian citizens. They're usually mostly male. There are possibly a few women scattered about and slaves, but. You know, it's a very niche audience. An audience, to me, it feels like in-jokes at Downing Street. You know, it's like um, these plays are being performed, but all of these individuals take a kind of active participation in some way. They're like the elite, essentially. So it's a bit like sitting around, although there's about 16,000 of them, it's not quite intimate. But, you know, you're sitting around, they're making in-jokes about politicians that people kind of know, they're contemporary, they're experiencing, and they're kind of some direct involvement. And I find that interesting because I I think about political satire today... And I wonder, who is the audience for that today? For me, often there is an intellectual quality to the audience of things that are to do with political satire. Do you feel that is the case, that in some ways that there is, that the type of audience can be kind of restricted to individuals that have 
a certain level of intellect, shall we say, or kind of like ability to engage with that? I think I can see that happening. If you look at something like, like as you were just sort of describing the Athenians there, there is definitely mm. an element of comedy which is to do with reinforcing the in-group. And because comedy is social, like I do stand-up comedy for kids sometimes, mm. and uh, you can see the children will kind of look at their, if it's a joke their parents are laughing at that they don't get, they'll look at them and they'll laugh as well in order to be part of the in-group on a level that they probably don't don't understand. So um, in terms of political satire, if I think, you know, the sort of mainstream element of political satire, something like, have I got news for you? There is yes. definitely, uh, I would imagine, it, it's for a certain sort of an audience. Private Eye is for a certain sort of an audience. And again, Private Eye completely full of in-jokes that reward the, the member of the in-group. If you've read it for years and years, you'll understand who they're referring to and you'll understand what they're saying when they're not really saying it out loud. Mm. Um, I suppose that is inherently, um, I don't know if elitist is the right word, but it is kind of exclusive, li yeah. like a cryptic crossword. You're not, you know, it's just impenetrable if you're on the outside of it. So yeah. it has, it certainly has value as entertainment, but only for a particular group. It's almost kind of uh, contradictory, isn't it? Because, you know, when, you, when we're dealing with political satire, this should be our politicians, it should be our government, it should be accessible, our understanding of it, our engagement with it um, should be for us and it should be understandable to us. But actually, it's often the opposite, as you were just describing these audiences and how closed off they can be. And, and, you know, as we get more democratic in the ancient world, as we get more democratic as we go through Greece, you know, and I use this in inverted commas because is it really democracy? This is a whole, I could do like another 5,000 hour podcast on, <laughs> is it actually democratic because who's getting to vote? You know, let's go, let's leave that aside for a minute. Yeah. But comedy then changes to make it relatable to the everyday person. And um, because we're getting more diverse audiences, we're getting different people kind of in the audience. One thing I just want to, we talk about this universally funny idea. Yeah. And I want to chat to you about kind of slapstick. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, if I imagine a group of people, let's say I've got my little five-year-old son, there's me, I'm nearly 40. Let's take someone who's like nearly 80. And if someone just falls over in front of you, that is probably the type of humour that all three might laugh at. I mean, I know that's yes. horribly brutal and nasty, but, you know, yeah, that kind for of sure. no, it is. physical comedy. Yeah, totally. Seeing a little baby run and then fall over or something. You're seeing a toddler, like, leg it and then face plant. Everyone's going to find that funny. Exactly. And, and I think... Part of why that we find that funny is because we all relate to it. It has to be, it's, it's the rules of comedy, I think, are that, that something has to be surprising and yet satisfying. So mm. if a child is running, then we are, we, we know what's happening. It's, it's running. And the fact it falls over is a surprise, but not a complete surprise. Like it's satisfying as well, because there's a sort of, there's a, there's a moment of bang, you know, it, it's, it like it sets it establishes a rhythm and then breaks the rhythm. And that's kind of comedy 101. And also we relate to it because we think, well, I've fallen over. I can I can appreciate that. If a child falls over and is hurt, if it looks like it like it really might have hurt itself, we don't laugh. We wince because it's a whole different reaction. But if we can see immediately that the child is safe, everything is all right, then it's um it's what's called a benign violation. So it's a violation. <laughs> oh, this is awful, but it's benign. No one really got hurt. If the violation isn't benign, then mm. um uh, then you uh, then you don't laugh unless I suppose there would be and I'm kind of pulling this out of the air as I think about it but if you imagine something like a racist joke which isn't benign unless you are a racist in which case you don't matter you you don't mind that a member of the out group suffers mm -hmm. within the joke is the victim of the joke but if you're not a racist person or you're sort of struggling with racism or trying to be anti-racist then a racist joke you'll go whoa 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 this this isn't a benign, a benign violation this is just a violation so it doesn't make you laugh i'm really interested in this idea of you know we're looking in the ancient world and i think this happens throughout history you know from the times of the greeks and the romans 
all the way through to now, we go in these cycles with comedy, you know, kind of moving between um, kind of what's popular. So, you know, we've got this political satire that we start off with, this old comedy. Then we talk to, you go to this sort of sitcom style. And if you go through history, I'm thinking more specifically maybe European history here, you kind of end up in these cycles with something that's more popular at a time as audiences shift and change and as comedy moves with it. But actually there are these universal, I think, styles or genres that kind of yes. always are there. And, and really, it's really interesting because if we get to the bottom line, if we conclude on that bit, it's to do with accessibility, as you, as you quite rightly said, that people like slapstick because we can relate to it immediately and we've seen it, we understand it. Yes, and political satire at the other end, perhaps, of the scale... We're, yes. we're starting to close off perhaps who can access the Yes, you know. I think so. But but for those sixteen hundred Athenians in a room, they will all be in the in-group and they'll all understand the terminology that's being used and they'll all appreciate mm. it. Or, you know, if they if they if it's about a member of their party, say, then they might not, but they might find it funny but not reveal it or what have you. And I think mm. those things, whether it's in terms of the accessibility, whether it is a street performer in in Italy, you know, doing a, a commedia dell'arte performer doing El Capitan, making fun of authority. That has a sort of a root in exactly the same thing. Or whether it's you know Chaplin doing a thing about Hitler, you know what I mean, making <laughs> stuff. So so you you kind of um, yes, yeah, so comedy expert Stuart Goldsmith just said the phrase Chaplin doing a thing about Hitler. Yeah. <laughs> we'll take but, we'll take that as just a little a little snippet and put it out there. And but my the point is, it. it's it's a case of. Um, of mocking authority that's a that's a big part of it because then again the violation is benign because we the people all see that oh that is that is uh you know someone is seeing someone's authority and and uh, deconstructing it and exploding it there's a, a fantastic street performer who used to work at Covent Garden called Pepe and Pepe was a brilliant brilliant um caricaturist a physical caricaturist of of other people's walks so someone would walk past his show on the West Piazza at Covent Garden and he would walk towards them spin round and follow them unseen by them at the last second and and lots of people do this it's called following but he was just absolute master craftsperson at it and uh, and in his in is it his following walk, or is it stalking Stu? <laughs> yeah well there's definitely a crossover okay but he would he would with his physicality he would just caricature and point up the way the person was walking and then we as an audience would all reappraise that person and go oh yes they are proud they are arrogant they are cowering whatever it is you know he's just found an element of them and sort of magnified it and so we then see something we all share this moment of um oh that's the truth we see the truth so it's it's surprising and satisfying again i know i understand that because i was just thinking as you were saying that that something about me and i think probably a lot of people if they're honest i don't want to have to work hard to laugh if jokes are too complicated or too many references that you're trying to kind of follow up, you end up being in your head, don't you? And trying to um, kind of follow it intellectually. It's a bit like I'm super lazy maybe with my comedy. I don't know. But it, I, I immediately laugh. And, I, and it's, it's like, a, you know, it's kind of raw guttural reaction. It's not anything like I haven't thought yes. about it. I've just laughed. And that's the release that I think we're all looking for. I think so. I think for comedians uh, the, mm. or, or for comedy fans, even people who are like big, big sort of steeped in comedy, um, then I think that you can that that becomes more elastic, whereby you enjoy like I certainly enjoy big broad physical comedy, and I certainly enjoy sort of a, a note perfect observation of a sort of Josh Widdicombe style kind of oh that that's the thing mm. I I'd noticed without noticing I've noticed it. Um, but I think also um, I love I love having to work hard for a laugh. I love being presented with the bits, and I'm like oh there's a puzzle, and I have to solve it in an eighth of a second. Oh, it's about that. Brilliant. It's like um like any any sort of specialist fan of something if you're an opera I mean I don't know anything about the opera but 
I get what I imagine is the truth is that I would watch an opera now and see it on a certain level. But someone who's been watching opera for 30 years would just appreciate the nuance and they would just sort of dissolve in it and go, I understand these decisions and I can interpret and I can read into and imagine all the decisions mm. that are being made. And I'm, I'm the same with comedy. So I love complex comedy, but I, that doesn't take away at all from my my love of something simple, just a proper right hook of a joke that you never see coming. Yeah, I mean, actually, you'd love ancient comedy then. But um, for me, I mean, I'm controversial as a classicist because I don't like ancient comedy. And I'm, loads of people are just going to like cancel this right now and just delete the whole thing. <laughs> but that's fine. Because I think because I'm being really honest, I think it's just because that that those steps I have to go through to try and get to the joke. I just mm -hmm. I just can't get there. I find it difficult. But mm -hmm. there is one thing about ancient comedy that I do like, and that is the Cox, uh, Stu. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, they were good at that. There's a number of different plays. You know, I don't know if you know much about ancient costume, but you might have seen things. Just before you move on, just an observation about um, uh, fallacies in comedy. I was going through... Oh, you're not going to use Cox, Stu? Just going to use... You're gonna no, no, no. I'm, you're going to leave me out here saying cock I'm and you're going to say phallus. I'm talking to a classicist here. I'm bringing my A game. <laughs> I was um, I was travelling through Peckham Rye years ago when it had snowed and someone had made, someone a person or persons unknown, had made a giant snowcock. And I remember looking at it like <laughs> it was a snowman, but then they'd gone for the, and it had uh, the balls as well. And it was, uh, it was a, a work of art. But what struck me is that, oh, that, that joke has been being done for thousands of years. Wherever there has been snow, people have thought, hey, this will be funny. Let's, Let's build a giant snow. Yeah. <laughs> Let's build a giant snowcock. So, it, that, I mean, that talk about universal. That's like, there no, we go. We is. see something striking. Oh, my God, what's that doing? There? I mean, I wanted to end on, on this section on cocks because for the exact, <laughs> the exact well, first of all, why not? But the, for the exact reason that we're just talking about, you know, there are, I mean, it is absurd. I mean, penises are just everywhere in ancient Greece and Rome all the time. I mean, kids would actually wear this little amulet, a bulla, which is a little cock. Um, okay. it's, it's madness. It's so in some ways, you know, to us, that's really like, you know, that we, we have to consider the whole, you know, Christianization of Europe and why we why we feel so that's so difficult for us today, because we, we don't see mm -hmm. that now um, to the ancients. That is much more normal. You know, the, the, seeing penises is they're everywhere. They're literally everywhere all the time. Um, yeah. And they're not quite as sexualized. You know, obviously, they stand for but they're, but they're a but... perfect joke, aren't they? Because if you have a. If you have a figure of authority, no matter how authoritative that man, I guess, then is being, mm. we all know he's got an absolutely ridiculous little dangling cock and balls. Yeah. Uh, concealed. And so as a, it's almost like, like farting in the same thing. If, if someone, you know, it, farts are always funny to children, to adults, because people, we swan around pretending that we are literate and intelligent and elite and what have you. And then if we accidentally fart, it's a thing we had no control over. Yes. Yeah. And so it brings us right back down. It takes us down a peg. And that's... And so yeah, I think it like some... dismantles the ego. Exactly, yeah. No, yeah. exactly. I, find, I, I think, you know, I mean, what better way to end the different types of comedy section on, <laughs> on that? Because, you know, we can all agree at least that take it or leave it with the political satire, take it or leave it with the sitcom style. Mm -hmm. But, you know, kind of, we all know that a cock is funny. I mean, that's the end of that section really, isn't it? I mean, what more can you say? <laughs> so I want to talk about audience now and kind of, you know, how important the audience is in the ancient world and kind of what it's made up of. So if I just kind of give you a little quick run through of what goes on mm. in the ancient audience. In this old comedy style, you know, the, the, we're talking about these Athenian citizens. So it's often men, like I said, you know, about 16,000 of them. And women don't really attend. And, and it's because women, especially high born women, are supposed to stay at home. And this is the, so the audience is a male audience, really. You may get women in the audience, but they would have been lower class women 
um, and they may have been uh, prostitutes um, and then slaves and these group called the Metics, which are kind of like, you know, um, foreigners that have moved to Athens. But what happens later on, and we get into like the later period, so this this new comedy time, which is also it goes into the Roman period. I mean, I don't know how good your history is, but as you know, Roman Empire. So we're getting empire now. We're not getting a little tiny little closed off city, mm-hmm. which is what we start with. We move to this like empire, the Hellenistic world, Alexander the Great into Roman period. So our audiences are becoming more and more diverse. So now you're getting regular people. And the other cool thing is you get you move from like, you know, one stage, um, it, th- these these plays by Aristophanes in old comedy are done on, on, on a stage in Athens for a festival and that's it, you know, mm. that's it, done. One time as well, you don't get all these touring around the country stuff that you get now. But then what it does turn into is exactly that. It turns into like a touring group of people that take their comedy around different places. So let me get to my question to you because yeah. like, here's the lecture. Let me get to my question for you, which is, I think the biggest thing that's happened for comedy is social media as an audience. Yeah. And, I, and I'm kind of interested because I imagine, you know, doing stand-up comedy might feel similar. Does it feel similar today to how it was when you first started absolutely your career not. in terms a- of the a- audience? Absolutely oh, Okay, not. so yeah. please do talk about that first then for me because that's, that's my ignorance. I don't yeah. know. How has the audience changed for you in your career so, then? So I've been uh, sort of lucky, I guess, to have started. I feel like, I feel like comedians like myself who started, I started about 17 years ago. People who started before social media existed were like people who opened a business in 1999 and get to have that on their, <laughs> on their van forever. And because it, it's such, it's an absolutely extraordinary change in how comedy is consumed, in how comedy is created. In terms of social media and the sharing of comedy and the democratization of the creative process of comedy, whether that is memes, which we've all seen memes, you know, funny pictures with possibly with text on them, which are they're kind of a contemporary version of pub jokes. And I use pub jokes to mean, you know, three men walk into a bar. They're not always set in a mm. pub, but those kind of what I think of as creative commons jokes, where which are like they're little pebbles and they're they're kind of rounded and sort of smoothed perfectly on the shore and the seas are being constantly retold. So the sort of Barry Cryer type joke, you know, three men meet a genie and they, what have you, they're all going to wish. And those <laughs> kind of jokes, those are sort of, they still exist. But the contemporary equivalent of them, which exists in a sort of a singularity, like a kind of they like memes are created by individuals. They they live and die on whether or not they are successful and worth sharing. If they are shared, they're shared and altered. And now we see I, I look at a site called Imgur a lot, imgur.com. It's like the, the image hosting site for Reddit. And it's just a collaborative collection of voting up the best and funniest memes of the day. And um, and it's incredible to see. Uh, to see jokes begin and be picked up and run with by everybody and then explode and then become old hat in the space of a week. Um, A meme in itself, the image won't be successful because the person sharing it is famous. It exists completely outside of that. It exists whether you get it, is this worth passing on to someone? And also you never know who created it in the first place. Just Just like the pub jokes, you know, they just seem to have always existed. Even though they do have creators, there's no credit associated with them. So that's that's one sort of thing. Then, of course, you've got um, the kind of filming TikTok, uh, YouTube videos type comedy, which is a whole other thing, not only in terms of the creativity involved, also the way in which that now enables people to create their own audiences. And the idea of being famous isn't really a thing anymore because who's famous? Really, what you want is reach. What you want is to have 10 million followers on a on a on some sort of app, some sort of platform, whereby you then are completely in control of 
your level of fame, the amount of money you make, where you tour, you put on a show somewhere, and you know exactly how many people are going to go to it. You know how many tickets you can sell. And um, having said that, I think that 10 years ago, there were, there, it, we began to sort of recognize this phenomenon of like, I don't want to sound like Nadine Dorries here. It may not have been precisely 10 years, but we started <laughs> to see, we started to see this thing happen whereby people would pick up huge online followings through some online comedy when they didn't have the skills to actually hold and an entertain an audience in real life. And, um, and so people would put on, they would go, oh my God, I can sell 5,000 tickets. And they'd put on a huge venue and they'd put on a thing and they wouldn't have a show. And they'd end up standing awkwardly in front of a video showing some of their, you know, projection showing some of their video content. That is no longer the case because comedy is so prevalent now. So many people are comedians. Like there are so many people doing it, so many people creating content online. There are now enough people who can hold just by sheer, it's a numbers game. People have enormous online followings and some of them are incredibly good live. There are enough comedians now that some of, I'll say us for the comedians bit, some of us are legitimately supermodels. Do you know what I mean? There are enough. It used to be <laughs> comedians would be weird looking, misshapen, often men, where the yes. whole point was I'm an outsider, I don't fit in and I'm going to tell you about how tough it is being an outsider and not fitting in and I'm going to be the victim and the loser and the jerk. And now there are enough people doing comedy that some of some of us are really some of them us are really beautiful <laughs> and and still are incredibly good live in in a in a live environment because there are just so many More people who are good at comedy. Well, that, this is where it's so different because first of all there are, there are just no, no female comics or I mean, remember that these are kind of comedic actors. You know, mm-hmm. it's a kind of theatrical performance. Often it's not stand up and things like that. You know. Um, we don't have women at all. So men play the role of women. They dress up. I mean, I guess that's an early version of drag. I don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the actors are the lowest status you can possibly get. That Because there is this notion, I think, because you want to laugh at them. Mm-hmm. If they are higher born, if they're higher status in society, that is inappropriate. It's morally inappropriate to make fun of them. So they are they are slaves. They are slaves or they're very low born people. But isn't that interesting how different that is? Because you, talk, you talked about things like, you know, almost like rock star level. You've got kind of mm-hmm. like the supermodels. People are held in high regard. You know, there's fame, uh, potentially. I know there's a mm-hmm. lot of people toiling and not getting that. But um, it's, it, it's a very different situation. You know, people look down upon to the point where, you know, the Emperor Nero famously enjoyed acting on stage. And it was the most controversial thing ever. I mean, he had to do it because megalomaniac. You know, it's kind of let him do it or he's going to like chop her head off. But, you know, that is the way of things. It's low class people yeah. um, that don't achieve fame in the yeah. way that other other ele- elements of society might. So that's really quite different, isn't I, it? I think Especially the, with, with the women, without women as yeah, well being comedic yeah, because, actors. Because, you because know? I, think, um, I think in order to be a comedian, the very first thing you need is the idea. You need to go, oh, being a comedian is a thing. And and every one of us who's a comedian is a comedian in part because we saw someone else do it and went, oh, I could do that. I could have a bash of that. Maybe in a million years in my wildest dreams, I could do that. Same when I was a street performer. You see a street performer and you go, wow, no one's going to, no one's taking a school to be a street performer. No, there's no training. I mean, there probably is now. <laughs> is there not? But is there no, no street in, performer in the, school? In the, yeah, no, because no, 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 but there's a multiplicity of reasons why that wouldn't work. But, <laughs> but the people who do it only do it because they saw it and they had the idea. So if we're talking about ideas and we're talking about communicating with other people, then everything in which every every invention which has exploded the idea of communication from the printing press to the internet, all of those things will then massively multiply. What's the word? Um, it'll become exponential. 
the amount of people mm. doing it, the amount of people seeing those people doing it, having the idea themselves. So, so even among, I mean, I think the internet has obviously changed everything about everyone's lives, but specifically for comedy, specifically for people who communicate for a living, every idea, then what it's like is a hydra. <laughs> no, it's, it's a chain reaction whereby whereby every idea spawns a million other ideas each one yeah, of that's a hydra a yeah, good good, well, good good myth good mythical analogy it's not but you really don't very them off. it's not very analogous to a hydra <laughs> We'll, we'll allow it. I think it's decent enough. Yeah, no, it's interesting what you say about that, you know, and I think you know, we need to be clear about in the ancient, obviously with populations are much smaller, so you're right mm. that even just multiplicity of people is going to make a change. But also there's no, there's very little choice in what career you do. And these comedic actors tend to come from the same families, like mm. a preordained thing, like you would have been born. I don't know what your father did. I mean, it would have been your father, not your mother, unfortunately. Okay. Um but, you know, whatever your father did, you follow in. Yep. So, you know, you, I don't know, is your father a comedian? He's a civil engineer. <laughs> Pretty okay. much, well, he so, was a civil engineer. A little bit different. Pretty much just the opposite a tiny of a bit, Just yep. a little bit different. Um, so, you know, from, for, for you to then become a comedian is not, a, is not really a thing that would be very easy to do. Mm. Certainly from the more kind of, you know, we're talking more ancient Greece now rather than later on in Rome where it does open up and we've got slaves and people like that doing it. A little bit more but it would have been types of families as well that came into sort of you know the old comedy style so you know it's very closed off there aren't these opportunities you know I asked you the question about how audiences changed you know from the time that you were stand up from the beginning to sort of now and you kind of gone into a little bit about um kind of how social media do you have you got an idea about the future of comedy from that that'd be a horrible oh, question perhaps yeah. but do you well, do you have a, an idea about where this might go for her we're not going to see like the death of like live no, comedy no. and please don't do that uh, no okay, no good. no what i do don't think? think so i don't think so i think good. things don't really get uninvented um so the fact that we are still congregating in groups 5000 years later you know <laughs> it's like we we are still there is still something really magical about that and there are loads of uh, magical and exciting and improvised things that happen in those spaces. And even if there is no improvisation, no crowd work, simply being there in the room while someone performs is special and will always be special. Over the course of the pandemic, uh, lots of comics, including myself, have been exploring loads of new ways to make comedy with technology, um, whether it be Zoom, whether it be trying to sort of find um, uh, online platforms as lag decreases as as the, you know what I mean? As, as, as Zoom and things like it get better and better and better, and the internet continues to expand and um, and refine and be faster, then the lag will will be less and less and less. I went to South by Southwest in um, uh, Texas earlier this year, which is an incredible technology festival, uh, which has a brilliant comedy strand. And I, I experienced loads of loads of brilliant VR projects. And I always thought VR was a bit like, oh, you know, I don't fancy that. And now I'm completely converted. I'm like, oh, you can watch a documentary and be in the documentary. And, and it's so much more immersive. It's like watching the cinema on your own. If you ever go to the cinema on your own, you're not worried about anyone else's opinion. You're way more immersed. It's like that squared. So that technology, I think, will become really important to comedy. Mm. Um, as I said, memes, who knows where that's going to go? Just the constant smashing together of ideas. And sometimes not in a good way. We've seen, you know, with kind of like the way memes become corrupted and the sort of 4chan and 8chan memes and Pepe and the rise of the, the Pepe, the a different Pepe, Pepe the Frog's role in the rise of uh, Trumpism. You know, those sort of things. None of this stuff is good it, necessarily. It's inherently amoral. And that thing I said mm. about one's personal position, uh, giving one a perspective on who the victim is of any particular joke. 
Um, that all, you know, there there is a, a, a strong argument I think to be made that comedy is inherently amoral, and the the laugh provoked by two ideas smashing together in a surprising yet satisfying way, uh, it can make you laugh even when you don't necessarily agree with it. And there's a there's an argument put forward that when you are a kind of comedian who is um, who is like an edgy comedian, who there's there's an argument put about by the, those flavour of comedians which are. If I made you laugh, then you are already implicit in the meaning of the joke. So you can't have a go at me for being a bad person, you know. Yes. And, and I don't subscribe to that at all because I think we can all laugh at things and then regret it. We can all laugh at things out of surprise and go, oh, my God. And then go, oh, God, I didn't mean to laugh at that. That's horrible. What do you feel like the mood is within the kind of comedic community when it comes to kind of what is fair game about poking fun at individuals? Mm-hmm. Um, have you got a, a view on like what the mood is out there about? Yes, the- I would say that the comedy community... It's, I mean, I have a pet theory that the comedy community doesn't really exist. It, like the comedy industry, it isn't really an industry. It isn't really a community. It's lots of self-interested individuals all pointing in different directions and occasionally agreeing or disagreeing with one another. With that caveat, I think that it is like herding cats. Uh, and we should remember that in that way that uh, the algorithm um, promotes uh, inflammatory things. Most comics... Oh, I mean, yeah, it's something we might wrestle with personally, but the ones that you hear the opinions from are trying to sell tickets on both sides of the, on both fringes. Right. Um, people who absolutely think anything's fair game, people who think we should be really moderate and must never say things because words are literally violence. Though, you know, those fringe things do not represent the, the vast majority of comedians. But most of us, I think, um, would sort of think about it as, yes, that's a difficult problem, isn't it? Well, that's, that has nuance. But no one's going to promote a tweet or retweet something that says, yeah, it's a difficult problem with nuance. So so it all takes place in a context of that. I think in terms of um, uh, whether we can make jokes about individuals or whether we whether there is a personal responsibility, whether I think I think a lot of the times we we as comics flatter ourselves that we are the holy fool that we're the jester who has the ultimate authority to speak the truth to the king. But of course, we forget a lot of the time that that it takes place within the context of our own personalities. Something that I see happening a lot at the moment, certainly over the last five years or so, comics who are in their 50s now, maybe, who were in their 30s, wildly successful and lauded and paid and appreciated um, for speaking truth to power, now have a different idea about what the power is. They, you know, people who 20 years ago did big, big sellout tours because they attacked the establishment, they now think, I, in my view, I think wrongly, that the establishment is typified by the sort of inverted commas woke other comedians that they see around them, the kind of lefty leaning, woke leaning kind of comedians who think that actually we should, as, as a basic, as a basic principle, we should try to be kind and then build comedy on top of that. I think they are seen as the establishment and they are not the establishment. The establishment is years and years and years of successive Tory governments. That's what the establishment is. So I think that people think that the woke brigade are the establishment. And I personally don't think that's true, but that's because I'm part of the woke brigade. So, (laughs) you know, so I think that that's something I've certainly seen a lot of, whereby people seem to be aiming at targets that they consider punching up. You know, we have this sort of endless, tedious conversation in comedy about one should always be punching up rather than punching down. The truth is it's complicated and nuanced because who you regard to be up or down depends on depends on your perspective. And it depends on your perspective across a multiplicity of elements of your personality, your race, your gender, yeah. your class, your your background. Yes. All of those things will give you an idea of whether it's 
whether someone else is punching up or down. And then everyone that watches that will have their own idea about their own context about who's the up or down in that situation. So it's it's really it's really really complex. Yeah, but this brings me, this makes me think a little bit more about like the new comedy, like the Roman comedy of Plautus and Terence, those sorts of people. They're kind of they like, do sound you know, like a comedy two, double act. I'm, I'm sure they probably work. <laughs> no, they're, they're and different. They're, di- they're different play. They're, they're they're the two most famous Roman playwrights. <laughs> right, these these kind of comedies that I mentioned about stock characters because loads of the comedy is based on stock characters. So yeah. it's stereotypical comedy. I mean, yeah. it is just and and for us today, a lot of it is incredibly uncomfortable because you know it's constantly constantly poking fun at women and, and slaves. So it's a lot, you know, it's class yeah, and women, two massive areas. What, is there a bigger yeah. punching down than making a joke about I know. A slave? That's <laughs> staggering. I know. I mean, obviously for us, it's very hard to kind of, we have to kind of step out of our modern world for a moment to understand that slavery is something that is, you know, is, is happening. It, it's a huge part of And it was totally commonplace. So for their context, it'd yes. be like, God, it's annoying when yes. your slave gets the shopping wrong. And, and you know what I mean? And that yeah. for us <laughs> would be wildly contextually different than for them. I do yeah, understand. it's horrendous yeah. to us. You are absolutely right. You know, like exactly right. I think this is one of the biggest barriers when we look back at ancient comedy for us today to kind of go, that's funny, mm-hmm. because you just immediately put your guard up um, about that. But in some ways, I don't know if this is, again, con- again, might be controversial, but in this sense, comedy was freer because that these restrictions that we have today, which I believe are right, by the way, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, not so, I, I'm, I'm a supporter of this, that we need to that there is so much power in comedy that we need to take ownership of that and be careful with how we how we kind of make jokes and what we what we do with them but in the ancient world there's none of that you know it's kind of free for all we can poke fun at whoever we think we should poke fun at and i wonder if that's kind of been a more kind of, i don't know, freeing experience kind of creative experience for someone than it is today because i i hear you speak and i know this is something you're doing but from an outsider that doesn't know anything about comedy mm. I just worry about all these barriers that there are and how care, like, you know, one little step, one way too far. I do know what you mean. I don't think there's any cause to worry. Uh, People, comedians have always, anyone working in comedy, going back as far back as records exist, I'm sure, have always said, oh, you can't say anything these days. That argument has been around since the pharaohs. I'm sure it has. Oh, okay, sweet. Obviously, (laughs) the ramifications are wildly different now with the internet and explosion of communication. But I don't think you need to worry because comedy thrives when there are rules. You know, I mean, really, and again, not, yes, not that comedy is an inherently good thing. Like I said, it can be amoral. It can be, it can simply be the smashing together of ideas in a surprising yet satisfying way. Um, but that will always exist. And when there are limitations, if you look at oppressive governments and oppressed comedians working in those governments, finding clever ways to it to say what they mean without saying what they mean. I'm sure that was happening in the ancient world as well. You know, you wouldn't be able to insult person X, but you would tell a story about a cow. But if you look at the 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 uh, the leader of the Communist Party in China, um, who resembles slightly Winnie the Pooh, so then they all of the people who are feeling oppressed in that regime, um, they would refer to their leader with pictures and references to Winnie the Pooh. So right. and then that got stamped down on, and now it's other references and yeah. more oblique references. And yeah, I mean you've always got point, sim- you know, you've always got symbolism, haven't you? And kind of analogy and metaphor that goes on, especially because these are like you know in the ancient world these are these are comedic plays, you know, yeah. and there are there are there's rhetoric going on, there's devices yeah, it's going the on. Exactly, you know, yeah. They do name people. They're like Cleon, listen, mate. You know, so there is a bit of this stuff. I think maybe they mix it a bit. Um, yeah, but similarly, there are there are comedians now who will um, uh, take pot shots at each other or satirise each other in their Netflix specials. You know, if you look at um, uh, James Acaster's uh, latest special, Cold Lasagna, Hate Myself, 
And in it, he talks about um, comics, some specific comics and their view on trans people and trans issues. And, right. and similarly, there'll be, you know, comics on the other side of that particular debate mm. calling out other comics. And, you know, if you look at what's happened with Dave Chappelle and Hannah Gadsby, whereby what's the power balance in that situation where someone becomes successful and holds a particular point of view, which they do comedy about, and then because of outrage culture and algorithmic inflammation and what have you, it then becomes into a kind of battle between them. And it, it turns into a battle whereby whoever can mobilise, like one party might mobilise their followers directly or accidentally or unwittingly to attack the other person. And then, so that's, you know, that's problematic, but it's all, it's certainly in a, in a long range historical context. Isn't it interesting mm. how we're all working it out? We're all working out as to what's allowed and what's, what's you know. What's fascinating for me is I think I had some, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about modern comedy. I don't know anywhere near what you know. And I know about ancient comedy. And I'm always coming to these things a little bit hopeful that we can find, really we can get a kind of the human condition, you know, what, and what kind of what, what, we, what we all as human beings, regardless of our historical context, kind of want to imagine or explore. And, and comedy is a great example of that because it's very reflective of kind of real raw emotions or feelings that are going on at the time. When I asked my question about the future and I was a little bit reticent and worried mm. about it, you're right because actually the, the, it's the past that shows me that the future will be fine because we adapt to these things and we, we kind of have these responses to it. Um, as human I mean, beings, when like, you say when you say the future will be fine, I mean possibly. Oh yeah, no, the future won't that. be fine I in comedy. It, I think the uh, <laughs> I think our comic future might involve uh, kind of long tracts and monologues about environmental disaster, and you know whether well, that yes, will be I, really I, interesting to see whether the comedy community can focus on what I think is really important, which is staving off the end of the world, stopping us from yes, raising the yeah, temperature yeah, yeah, by yeah. three degrees and killing billions. No, I you know no, so, I absolutely but, but, but I think that's interesting whether whether. Uh, the comedy community that I earlier said didn't exist, whether comedians um, whether comedians will embrace that. And there's a, there's a brilliant comic, um, Dr. Matthew Winning, who is a climate researcher as well as being a comedian, and he's tackling it head on. And I would be mm. thrilled to discover 10 years from now, so were loads of people, because that is the most pressing challenge, I think. That's what happens in the ancient... You know, the, 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 remember that this comedy is born of a fledgling democracy, the first kind of, like, you know... A democratic state in this set up in this particular way in terms of huge events that are going on admittedly not quite as as bleak perhaps as uh the, the situation we are in with climate change but comedy is a reflection of that and an exploration of that now just to finish up Stu, i, I don't know if you're going to hate me now for the for the end of this i mean i don't know how i've done so far with with such a highly regarded podcast host and then me not rocking up. <laughs> but um, I make my guests do a little game at the end. Oh, go on. Yep. And as you know, this is called Legit Classics. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's called Legitimates. And what the game is, is you get like a kind of little timer of 60 seconds mm -hmm. and you just have to kind of do your very best to explain what you've learned about the ancient world and modern comedy and little interesting things that we talked about, okay. kind of a little summary, yep. a little summary of what you can remember. Uh, make some shit up if you want, if you really can't remember stuff. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> okay. So we'll start a little timer mm -hmm. um, and it will be sort of 60 seconds and then we'll see how you get on. Is that okay. all right? Yep, can you yep, manage yep. that? Let's give it a go. Yep. Brilliant. Well, I'll count you in. Okay. Three, two, one. 
Go. Today, we learned that in ancient Athens, there was what's called old comedy and new comedy. And old comedy was much more, I imagine, like the House of Commons. And it had 16,000 Athenians barking insults at each other. And then new comedy became a bit more like sitcom, whereby people would make fun of slaves primarily, because punching down meant nothing to these people. But the context was different. So we shouldn't judge them too harshly uh, in much the same way a Michael McIntyre routine about going to the zoo 100 years from now when zoos are outlawed uh, we shouldn't look back and go that man was a monster audiences we talked about audiences and about how the audiences were uh, male and uh, as a result they would joke about things that they found funny we talked about the universality of comedy uh, we found out that Jasmine is scared for the future um, but that she has no need to be because uh, there will always be things to resist against there will always be problems we summed up by uh, with a, a sort of a plaintive cry uh, saying please can we start doing more comedy about the environment because it's the only really important thing. And that's 60 seconds, so you literally <laughs> just squeezed it in. That's quite clever. I mean, there is, I mean, I'm sort of doing a bit of a teacher thing on you there because teachers are quite good at knowing what's going on with time without even looking at the clock. And I think you've got that too as a comedian because you're used to being on stage. And you're like, I've got, <laughs> I you only got a few minutes I'm, here. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pick myself up too much, but I felt like that's got to be a minute. <laughs> <laughs> You can big yourself up. Well, listen, thanks so much for, for talking to me today. I, I mean, I've learned, I mean, I've learned so much. I mean, you're so knowledgeable about comedy. It's really interesting. And, and I think unexpectedly talking about the future and stuff, I didn't expect to talk about that. But I really like that. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you thanks for coming for on. Me. And you've been Stu Goldsmith. And this is Legit Classics with Jasmine Elmer. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>